Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We know, Lord, that we are blind to it apart from your spirits working in our hearts to help us to see its truth, its beauty, and its rightness. And so send your spirit right now to open each of our hearts to receive your word. Would you send your spirit to me, especially as I proclaim your word, Lord, that I might make it clear and that I might speak only what is true. Would you set a guard over my mouth, Lord, that I might not say anything false. And again, Father, I ask for your spirit to go forth with the words that I proclaim in order that lives can be changed, that your light can shine forth for the glory of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah seven fourteen. But the Lord will still give you proof. A virgin is pregnant. She will have a son and will name him Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, chapters, um, chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Luke 1, 26 to 35. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Romans 8, 31-35. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also... With him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Well, last week as we uh, begun this Advent, as we began this Advent series, we began with looking at the problem that Isaiah was responding to with this promise of a Messiah. And that problem that Isaiah was responding to was the problem of human sinfulness. We saw that our sinfulness is a problem that no human being could possibly solve. And of course, in Isaiah's own time, just as in our time, this isn't really how they saw things. They didn't see sin as being the primary problem of their day. As we've seen throughout the book of Isaiah, they really thought that Assyria was the big problem of their day, and that if they could be saved from Assyria, then all of their problems would be solved. And what Isaiah is reminding the people of Israel of over and over again is that Assyria is not their biggest problem. And the only reason Assyria is a problem in the first place is because of the sin that is bringing Assyria upon them in judgment. 
And again, the same is true in our own day. We look at so many different worldly problems that we have as being our main problem, as if we could just find a solution to this over here or that over there, then really we would be better, we would be saved. And yet, this is not the case. Scripture so often tells us that our deepest problem, the root of all of our other problems, is sin itself. This is the great problem facing the world, and it is the deepest problem that every single human being has, no matter where they are from, no matter how old or young they are or rich or poor they are. This is the problem of humanity, the problem of sin. And so we have this great question, this great problem that needs to be answered. What is to be done about this problem of sin? Now, as we As I go about the message this morning, I actually want to go about it from a negative perspective and then from a positive perspective. First, I want to look at what doesn't work, and then I want to look at what does work. One of the great mysteries to me of God's plan of redemption, the whole story of the Bible, is precisely the question, why did God wait so long to do something about sin? That we have this whole Old Testament, which is 75% of our Bible, which is basically the story of failed attempts to deal with sin. Now, we don't know if all the genealogies of the Bible are complete, but the Bible gives us about 4,000 years between Adam and Jesus Christ. And if it's 4,000 years between Adam and Christ, that means it's probably about 4,000 years since the fall in Jesus' coming, 4,000 years that humanity dealt with the problem of sin. And again, God did not solve this problem for humanity. He gave 4,000 years. He gave 1,000 pages of the Bible to things that did not work. And so why is it that God gave so many wrong solutions to the problem of sin before finally giving us the right solution? Now, I don't think the Bible ever totally, fully answers this problem for us. And so some of the answer must be left to the mystery of God And yet, I think it can help us to see what the Bible has to say about this, so again, we can more deeply appreciate the right solution that God gave. I'm sure all of you, especially who are homeowners, have probably experienced at some time having a problem in your house that you maybe weren't really sure how to solve. And if you're like me and you don't know anything about home improvement, then you probably went about maybe 10 different ways of the wrong way to solve the problem. And maybe your wife even knew the right way all along and she was telling you the right way, but of course you didn't want to listen because you thought you knew the right way all along and it isn't until you tried all these 10 wrong ways when finally you're willing to say, okay, I guess I don't know what I'm doing. I guess I'll listen to somebody else and I'll do this the right way. Well, I think that's very much the dynamic at work between the Old Testament and the New Testament in our Bibles that we see all the ways that don't work until finally at last we'll say, okay, God, I can see that I cannot solve this problem myself. You must have to do something about it. The place in the New Testament where I think God makes most clear this purpose of 4,000 years of history where nothing was done about sin, the, the purpose of all of this Old Testament story where we wonder sometimes, where is this going? The, the scripture that's most clear in my mind is Romans 7 verse 13. Let me just read it for you and then I'll talk a little bit more about it. Romans seven thirteen says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, 
and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now, the context of this verse is that Paul had just gotten done saying a great deal about the dynamics that exist between sin and God's law. And the basic point to take away is that God's law did not solve sin. This is one of the things in the Old Testament that was given to us as one of the things that God is trying to show us. Well, here's my law. People might think, well, maybe I would do the right thing if I just had the right instructions. So God gave the right instructions. He gave the law. And the law failed. The the law could not solve sin. And what Paul is saying in Romans 6 and 7 is that in many ways, God's law actually made the problem of sin worse than it was before. Not only did it not solve the problem, but it aggravated the problem. It made it worse. And finally, when we get to Romans 7 verse 13, Paul gives us this in order that statement. In Romans 7, verse 13, Paul says, Why was the law given? Which I want to, again, expand in this point of my message to say, Why was the Old Testament given? Why were these 4,000 years given where nothing was done with sin? He gives us the purpose behind this whole arrangement. Romans 7, 13 says, In order that sin might be shown to be sin." and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So that is a a purpose statement, beloved. Not only for God's giving of the law, but I think it could be a summary statement for all of the Old Testament, of all of those 4,000 years. Why those 4,000 years? In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In large part, what God was doing through the Old Testament is precisely this, to show us that sin really is sin. Well, what does that mean? Well, in our own natural minds, we are not persuaded that sin is sin. We are not persuaded that sin really is a problem. We are not persuaded that sin really is a bad thing. In our own fallen minds, in our own fallen reasoning, we think that sin is just one problem among many. Or many of us might even think that the difference between sin and righteousness, the difference between good and evil, really just comes down to personal preference. We think it's something more like different flavors of ice cream or different styles of music. Well, some people like sin, other people don't like sin. You know, to each his own, live and let live. And so one of the great burdens of the Old Testament, and it's a credit to our human obstinacy that it took 4,000 years for God to show us this, the purpose is to show us that sin really is sin. That sin really is a problem. That it really does destroy everything that it touches. That nothing good really can come from it. That it isn't simply a matter of personal preference. That it's not simply a small nuisance that we can deal with through our own small strategies. No, again, as Romans 7.13 itself says, sin is sinful beyond measure. Sin is exceedingly sinful. There is no maximum limit that you can set on just how bad sin is. It is the problem of all problems. It is the nastiest, darkest, meanest, worst thing that ever happened to humanity. And yet we, in our human foolishness, so often want to treat it like a teddy bear. 
We want to treat it like it's something that we can just welcome into our lives and maybe we'll kick the can down the road and we'll deal with it sometime in the future. But beloved, this cannot be. Sin is sin. It is horrible in every way. It brings death to all that it touches. And so God gave us 4,000 years of near universal judgment and death to persuade us that sin cannot be trifled with. To persuade us that no matter how we may strive to resolve the problem of sin on our own, we will not be able to do it. We will always fail in our own strength. That the fear of judgment will not get rid of sin from us because the Old Testament gives us the story of the flood that destroyed all humanity and still Noah and his family did not change. They were still given over to sin. The promise of blessing will not get us to give up our sin because the Exodus itself didn't change anything. When God brought his people into this promised land, they weren't suddenly thankful and living in his ways. No, they still rejected God in sin. We know that having more and better rules will not get rid of the problem of sin because the giving of the law did not change anything. People were still just as sinful afterwards. And on and on, on every page of the Old Testament, this is what we find. God interceding for his people, working something on their behalf and their people and God's people being totally unchanged by it. Sin not being dealt with, judgment and death still coming. And so God teaches us, again, in this first three quarters of our Bibles, that sin is sin, that it is exceedingly sinful. He makes us thirsty and hungry for the coming of a true answer, for a true solution for this problem. Again, like somebody who's tried a dozen different wrong ways to fix a problem and is just itching for what is the right way? How can I possibly solve this? What is to be done? Well, the answer, the the solution is promised as far back as the curse itself in the third chapter of Genesis. And we see this promise reiterated again when we come to Isaiah in the verses that we now want to look at together. In these verses, God shows us the true solution of sin. He gives us this promise and he tells us why this solution will really be different than all these other solutions that have been tried for 4,000 years, 3,000 years at the time of Isaiah. All these solutions that have tried and failed. And so what does work? Again, we're going to look at Isaiah 7 verse 14. And 9 verse 6. And I think we can look at these together because they clearly do speak to the same reality. Even though they are separated by a couple of chapters, Isaiah 7.14 and 9.6 both speak of the same person. And I say this by looking at Isaiah itself. Of course, part of the reason we want to say that is because we can jump to the New Testament and we can say, well, of course, we see the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the answer to both of these prophecies. But the New Testament authors themselves were looking closely at Isaiah, trying to understand his message and then applying it rightly. And so we ourselves can look at Isaiah and we can see that Isaiah in 7.14 and in 9.6 is telling us 
about the same person. And I think we can see two commonalities that tell us that Isaiah 7.14 and 9.6 are prophesying the same person, the same answer to the problem of sin. Isaiah 7.14 says, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So a child is clearly spoken of here. A, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. And then in Isaiah 9.6, the words begin, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. So notice that both of these prophecies are speaking about the birth of a child. That's one commonality that they have. But second, we see that both of these prophecies are speaking of a divine son. So not just the birth of any generic child, but in particular, a divine child. And so in 714, we see that the child is to be named Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God is with us. God is with us. And so this child is being born and it is getting the name, receiving the name, God is with us, speaking to the deity of this child. And again, in 9.6, this child that is given, this child that is born, is to be called Mighty God. And so I would argue that the Emmanuel promised in Isaiah chapter 7 is the same as the child promised in Isaiah chapter 9. And next week, we'll even look at more prophecies that Isaiah has of this coming one. But the reality to see right now is that Isaiah speaks in his own time, a thousand years before the coming of Christ, of a day that will come when a child will be born who will be God. And there are three key things that I want us to see about this promised son this morning. Three key things that make Jesus the answer to human sinfulness. First, I want us to see That this promised son is God and yet human. So fully man and fully God. Second, I want us to see that because he is God, he can truly save us. And then third, I want us to see that because he is God, this salvation is as good as accomplished at the very birth of this divine son which speaks to the confidence that we can have in our salvation. So first we're going to see that he's fully God and yet fully man. Then we'll see that because he's fully God, he can save us. And then we'll see that salvation is as good as accomplished at the very birth of this divine son. So how do we know that this coming one is fully God and yet fully man? Well, again, look at Isaiah 7 verse 14. First of all, it says that a virgin shall conceive. A virgin shall conceive. Now, in Hebrew, this word can mean maiden or simply young, unmarried woman. So in the Hebrew text itself, there's nothing that tells us that this woman is a virgin in particular, that she has never known a man. And yet, the very earliest commentary that we have of the Old Testament is the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was translated into Greek even before the birth of Jesus Christ, and so it is the oldest commentary that we have on the Old Testament. And in the Septuagint, when they translate this verse, the way that they translate 
the word for the Hebrew word for maiden or young unmarried woman is the word for virgin. And that is the word that also gets picked up in the New Testament when the New Testament quotes this promise. And so it seems very clear that even the Jewish people in the time before Christ, as they were reading this verse, were not just expecting a young woman to get pregnant, as happens many times every year. Rather, they were expecting a virgin to conceive. Now, the fact that a virgin would conceive tells us two things, does it not? First, it does tell us very clearly that the child to be born is human. This child has a human mother. This child will be born just like any other human being. This would be true if the mother was a virgin or even if you just translate this as young woman. The child to be born is a human being like you or I coming into the world just the same as you or I. And yet, especially if we understand that this woman that conceives this child is a virgin, that also tells us very clearly that this child is God, that this child has no earthly father. And again, this is reiterated for us in a couple ways in these verses. Again, in 7.14, it says that this child will be called Emmanuel. The child will be called God with us. This is a title that is given to no other human being in all of Scripture. If the child is named God with us, we should indeed take this as a divine title. And again, when we come to the New Testament and we read it in Luke 1 this morning, we see very clearly that this is the case. If we're wondering how can it be that a virgin will conceive and give birth to one who is called God with us, Luke 1, verses 34 and 35 are written to give us an answer. Because it says that Mary said to this angel who appeared to her, she asked the question, how will this be since I am a virgin? She herself is wondering how this promise could possibly come true. And the angel answers her in Luke 1, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And so this is how there could be one born who is fully human and yet fully God. Born of a woman just as you are I and yet born by the overshadowing power of the Holy Spirit where God truly is the father of this baby to be born, this one unique in all of human history. And this is why the child is called Emmanuel. Isaiah 9 verse 6 makes this point even clearer. Again, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. So speaking clearly here of a human being. Not someone just descending down from the clouds, but a child actually being born. And then it says, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And then look at that second title, Mighty God. That will be the name of this child. That child will be called Mighty God. Now, if, again, maybe we think that Isaiah here is just exercising 
overstatement. Maybe the kings in the Old Testament were called mighty gods simply because they were king. And yet, if we look at Isaiah himself, this is clearly not the case. You can flip over just a couple pages to Isaiah 10, verse 20, and this title, Mighty God, is used to speak of Yahweh himself. It is used to speak of God overall. Isaiah 10, starting in verse 20, it says, In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord. So notice there the title Lord is the name Yahweh. Will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. And then verse 21 A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Those words there, mighty God, are the exact same words we find in Isaiah 9, verse 6. When it says that this child to be born will be called mighty God, it is saying that there is no distance between God himself, who rules over all, who has all power in heaven and on earth, and this child that is to be born. The child born to Mary was mighty God. This was God's solution to the problem of human sinfulness that had evaded mankind for thousands and thousands of years. God himself would become flesh to deal with the problem of sin. Now, why is it that God had to become flesh? Why is this the solution to the problem of sin? Why isn't there any other way that any human being could possibly take? And so the second point that I want us to see from these verses is that God had to become man because only God can truly save us. Only God can truly save us. A theme throughout the Bible as you read through the Bible, is that only God can save. Only God can save. Just to give you one example of this, here's Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. God says, See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Do you hear that? That there is no God beside the Lord. It is the Lord alone who kills and makes alive, who wounds and heals, and there is none who can deliver out of his hand. In other words, if we want salvation, if we want rescue from whatever the problem is that we're facing, whether it's as enormous as sin or as small as some offense that we've taken, Whatever problem we want rescue from, only God himself can give deliverance. There is no power higher than God. There is none that can deliver out of God's hand. God alone is Savior. And this theme of God alone being Savior is brought forward into the New Testament, especially, for example, in Acts 4 verse 12, where it says, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. 
The reason why there is no other name, why there is no other avenue of salvation than God becoming man in Jesus Christ is because God himself must be our Savior. There is no other name that can save. There is no other man. There is no human being that God could ever have designated in the long course of human history and called that human being Savior, Rescuer. He is the one who will deliver you from your sins. Because there is no other human being who is God. There is no other human being who is Savior. The great end result of this is what we read in Romans 8, verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you understand the the reasoning there? If God is for us, who can be against us? We, We can ask this question because there is no Savior greater than the Lord. Because there is no God above our God. That means that if our God has saved us, then we are saved indeed. There is no second jeopardy. There is no other solution that will ever be given. God has done it. Therefore, there is nothing that can now be against us. And so when Isaiah in chapter 7 says that this child is Emmanuel, is God with us, and in chapter 9 says that this child is mighty God, we can be assured that this child will indeed bring a full and complete salvation. And so we rejoice in the salvation that we receive in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, the devotional response to this, the response of our hearts, should be the response that's stated in Psalm 20, verse 7. It says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. If it's true that God is indeed the only Savior, the only judge, the only one who can deliver, then our response must be to trust in Him and to trust in Him alone. To not trust in any of these other human-fashioned ways to deal with our sins, to deal with our life problems, but rather to go to God alone and to say, God, because we know that you are the only Savior, because we know that you are the only one that can deliver, therefore, we will trust in you alone. We will not look to our own wisdom. We will not look to the solutions that we see sold to us on the TV or in popular books or wherever else we may look. But rather, we will go to you in your word, trusting that in your word we will indeed find rest for our souls. That we will find salvation there. Beloved, one simple way to know if you are looking to the Lord alone for salvation or whether you are looking to other sources of salvation is precisely to ask the question, how much do you look to the Lord? And how much of your life do you give to looking at other sources of help or of comfort or of rest? If you really think that your salvation comes entirely from the Lord, you will devote yourself to the Lord in his word, especially to know him and to know his ways because there is salvation. If, on the other hand, you think that you can be helped by other mechanisms, by other means, then you will give relatively less time to the Lord, trusting that it is through other means primarily that you will be saved. And so we must not trust in men 
As Psalm 20 says, we must not trust in chariots and horses. We must not trust in any human design. Rather, we must trust in the Lord alone because he alone can save. And that is why he alone became man. And so finally, what I want us to see is the strength of this salvation. To see that our salvation is as good as accomplished at the very birth of our Savior. Now to see this, I want to look in particular at the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9. And we can look at the very beginning of chapter 9, and we see at the beginning of chapter 9, our our sinfulness, our fallenness is spoken of in very clear terms. What we need salvation from. And so in Isaiah 9, starting in verse 1, it says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So notice first this shift from contempt to glory. He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. But in latter time, he made glorious the way of the sea, Galilee of the nations. And so how do we move from contempt to glory? Or look at verse 2. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. How do we move from darkness to light or from deep darkness to this shining light? And then again, to emphasize the glory of this salvation, in verse 3 it says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So this is the the glory of the salvation that we have. We have this joy. We have this light. We have this glory moving out of darkness and contempt. And then notice that verses 4, 5, and 6 all begin with the word for. Or you could say they all begin with the word because. It's the same word. Why do we have this hope? Why do we move from darkness to light? Why do we move from contempt to glory? Where there are three becauses that is given. There are three fours that are given. First, in verse 4, it says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So the first reason why we have this salvation is because the yoke of our oppressor is broken. The sin that once held us in bondage has now been broken. We have been set free from this oppressor. Now notice the second for, the second because that is given in verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So the second reason why we have this deliverance from darkness to light is because every sign of warfare, every sign of violence is being burned as fuel for the fire. The time of of warfare where there are all these garments rolled in blood. That time is coming to an end. And the time is coming 
when they will be burned as fuel for the fire and there will be peace. And again, why do we have this hope? Verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Do you see, beloved, this redemption that is spoken of? In verses 1 and 2, the same because that is given in verses 4 and 5 comes to this grand conclusion in verse 6 saying, because to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Simply the fact that this child is born, the fact that this son is given means that this redemption is as good as accomplished. It means that this oppressor has now been broken, that the warfare is now ended simply because this child is born and this son is given. Beloved, this is how great of a salvation we have in Jesus Christ, that simply the fact that Jesus is who he says he is, the fact that he is both fully God and that he is fully man, means that at his birth we have this glorious redemption as good as accomplished. And this is why verse 6 says that his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then again to emphasize that salvation comes only from the Lord. We read as we go through, through verse 7. It says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. With justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then the last line The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Again, beloved, it will not be by our own designs. It will not be by anything that human beings can do. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of God himself came down as a baby for us and for our salvation. And so... Because Jesus was born both fully God and fully man, we know that we have the hope of all the earth. We know that the 4,000 year scourge of sin has finally been broken because nothing can stop the Lord, because no one can deliver from the Lord's hand. And so if we will look to this Savior and this Savior alone, Again, if we will withdraw our trust from everything else that competes with him, then we will find a salvation that can never be taken away from us. Because Jesus truly is mighty God. Even as the child in the womb, even as the newborn in Bethlehem, he is mighty God. And he will accomplish our salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we glorify you that you did send your Son to win salvation for us when there was nothing whatsoever that we could do for ourselves, God. That you sent your Son and you indeed called him Mighty God. You called him Emmanuel in order that you could come into our midst. 
and in order that we could finally come into your presence, in order that our sin may be done away with, that we be delivered from its curse, and we know you forever and ever. God, cause our hearts to rejoice in this truth this morning and this Christmas and cause us to hope in you alone, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.